This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter Thirty Seven. Liberty. No matter with what solemnities he may have been devoted upon the altar of slavery, the moment he touches the sacred soil of Britain, the altar and the god sink together in the dust, and he stands redeemed, regenerated, and disenthralled by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation. Curran. Note. John Philpot Curran, 1750-1817, Irish orator and judge, who worked for Catholic emancipation. A while we must leave Tom in the hands of his persecutors, while we turn to pursue the fortunes of George and his wife, whom we left in friendly hands in a farmhouse on the roadside. Tom Locker we left groaning and tousling in a most immaculately clean Quaker bed under the motherly supervision of Aunt Dorcas, who found him to the full as tractable a patient as a sick bison. Imagine a tall, dignified, spiritual woman whose clear muslin cap shades waves of silvery hair, parted on a broad, clear forehead which overarches thoughtful gray eyes. A snowy handkerchief of lisse crepe is folded neatly across her bosom. Her glossy brown silk dress rustles peacefully as she glides up and down the chamber. "'The devil!' says Tom Locker, giving a great throw to the bedclothes. "'I must request thee, Thomas, not to use such language,' says Aunt Dorcas, as she quietly rearranged the bed. "'Well, I won't, Granny, if I can help it,' says Tom. "'But it is enough to make a fellow swear so cursedly hot.' Dorcas removed a comforter from the bed, straightened the clothes again, and tucked them in till Tom looked something like a chrysalis, remarking as she did so, "'I wish, friend, thee would leave off cursing and swearing, and think upon thy ways.' "'What the devil,' said Tom, "'should I think of them for? Last thing ever I want to think of, hang it all!' And Tom flounced over, untucking and disarranging everything in a manner frightful to behold. "'That fellow and gal are here, I suppose,' said he, sullenly, after a pause. "'They are so,' said Dorcas. "'They'd better be off up to the lake,' said Tom. "'The quicker the better.' "'Probably they will do so,' said Aunt Dorcas, knitting peacefully. "'And harky,' said Tom. We've got correspondents in Sandusky that watch the boats for us. I don't care if I tell now. I hope they will get away, just to spite Marks, the cursed puppy. Damn him!" "'Thomas!' said Dorcas. "'I tell you, Granny, if you bottle a fellow up too tight, I shall split,' said Tom. "'But about the gal. Tell him to dress her up some way so's to alter her. Her description's out in Sandusky.' "'We will attend to that matter,' said Dorcas, with characteristic composure. As we at this place take leave of Tom Locker, we may as well say that, having lain three weeks at the Quaker dwelling, sick with a rheumatic fever which set in in company with his other afflictions, Tom arose from his bed a somewhat sadder and wiser man, and, in place of slave-catching, betook himself to life in one of the new settlements, where his talents developed themselves more happily in trapping bears, wolves, and other inhabitants of the forest, in which he made himself quite a name in the land. Tom always spoke reverently of the Quakers. "'Nice people,' he would say. "'Wanted to convert me, but couldn't come it exactly. But tell you what, stranger, they do fix up a sick fellow first-rate, no mistake. Make just the tallest kind of broth and knick-knacks.' As Tom had informed them that their party would be looked for in Sandusky, it was thought prudent to divide them. 
Jim, with his old mother, was forwarded separately, and a night or two after George and Eliza, with their child, were driven privately into Sandusky, and lodged beneath the hospital roof, preparatory to taking their last passage on the lake. Their night was now far spent, and the morning star of liberty rose fair before them. Electric word! What is it? Is there anything more in it than a name, a rhetorical flourish? Why, men and women of America, does your heart's blood thrill at that word, for which your fathers bled, and your braver mothers were willing that their noblest and best should die? Is there anything in it glorious and dear for a nation that is not also glorious and dear for a man? What is freedom to a nation but freedom to the individuals in it? What is freedom to that young man who sits there with his arms folded over his broad chest, the tint of African blood in his cheek, its dark fires in his eyes? What is freedom to George Harris? To your fathers, freedom was the right of a nation to be a nation. To him it is the right of a man to be a man and not a brute. The right to call the wife of his bosom his wife, and to protect her from lawless violence. The right to protect and educate his child. The right to have a home of his own, a religion of his own, a character of his own, unsubject to the will of another. All these thoughts were rolling and seething in George's breast, as he was pensively leaning his head on his hand, watching his wife, as she was adapting to her slender and pretty form the articles of man's attire, in which it was deemed safest she should make her escape. "'Now for it!' said she, as she stood before the glass, and shook down her silky abundance of black curly hair. "'I say, George, it's almost a pity, isn't it?' she said, as she held up some of it playfully. Pity it's all got to come off." George smiled sadly, and made no answer. Eliza turned to the glass, and the scissors glittered as one long lock after another was detached from her head. "'There, now, that'll do,' she said, taking up a hairbrush. "'Now for a few fancy touches.' "'There! Ain't I pretty young fellow?' she said, turning around to her husband, laughing and blushing at the same time. "'You always will be pretty. Do what you will," said George. "'What does make you so sober?' said Eliza, kneeling on one knee, and laying her hand on his. "'We are only within twenty-four hours of Canada, they say. Only a day and a night on the lake, and then—oh, then—' "'Oh, Eliza,' said George, drawing her towards him, "'that is it. Now my fate is all narrowing down to a point.' To come so near, to be almost in sight, and then lose all, I should never live under it, Eliza." "'Don't fear,' said his wife, hopefully. "'The good Lord would not have brought us so far, if He didn't mean to carry us through. I seem to feel Him with us, George.' "'You are a blessed woman, Eliza,' said George, clasping her with a convulsive grasp. "'But—oh, tell me—can this great mercy be for us?' Will these years and years of misery come to an end? Shall we be free?" "'I am sure of it, George,' said Eliza, looking upward, while tears of hope and enthusiasm shone on her long, dark lashes. "'I feel it in me that God is going to bring us out of bondage this very day.' "'I will believe you, Eliza,' said George, rising suddenly up. "'I will believe. Come, let's be off.' "'Well, indeed,' said he, holding her off at arm's length, and looking admiringly at her. "'You are a pretty little fellow. That crop of little short curls is quite becoming. Put on your cap. So, a little to one side. I never saw you look quite so pretty. 
But it's almost time for the carriage. I wonder if Mrs. Smith has got Harry rigged." The door opened, and a respectable middle-aged woman entered, leading little Harry, dressed in girls' clothes. "'What a pretty girl he makes!' said Eliza, turning him around. "'We call him Harriet, you see. Don't the name come nicely?' The child stood gravely regarding his mother in her new and strange attire, observing a profound silence, and occasionally drawing deep sighs and peeping at her from under his dark curls. "'Does Harry know Mama?' said Eliza, stretching her hands toward him. The child clung shyly to the woman. "'Come, Eliza, why do you try to coax him, when you know that he has got to be kept away from you?' "'I know it's foolish,' said Eliza. "'Yet I can't bear to have him turn away from me. But come, where's my cloak? Here, how is it men put on cloaks, George?' "'You must wear it so.' said her husband, throwing it over his shoulders. "'So, then,' said Eliza, imitating the motion, "'and I must stamp, and take long steps, and try to look saucy.' "'Don't exert yourself,' said George. "'There is, now and then, a modest young man, and I think it would be easier for you to act that character.' "'And these gloves, mercy upon us,' said Eliza. "'Why, my hands are lost in them.' "'I advise you to keep them on pretty strictly,' said George. "'Your slender paw might bring us all out. "'Now, Mrs. Smith, you are to go under our charge, and be our auntie. You mind?' "'I've heard,' said Mrs. Smith, "'that there have been men down, warning all the packet captains against a man and woman with a little boy.' "'They have,' said George. "'Well, if we see any such people, we can tell them.' A hack now drove to the door and the friendly family who had received the fugitives crowded around them with farewell greetings. The disguises the party had assumed were in accordance with the hints of Tom Locker. Mrs. Smith, a respectable woman from the settlement in Canada, whither they were fleeing, being fortunately about crossing the lake to return thither, had consented to appear as the aunt of little Harry, and in order to attach him to her he had been allowed to remain the last two days under her sole charge and an extra amount of petting, jointed to an indefinite amount of seed-cakes and candy, had cemented a very close attachment on the part of the young gentleman. The hack drove to the wharf. The two young men, as they appeared, walked up the plank into the boat, Eliza gallantly giving her arm to Mrs. Smith, and George attending to their baggage. George was standing at the captain's office, settling for his party, when he overheard two men talking by his side. "'I've watched every one that came on board,' said one, "'and I know they're not on this boat.' The voice was that of the clerk of the boat. The speaker whom he addressed was our sometime friend Marks, who, with that valuable perseverance which characterized him, had come on to Sandusky, seeking whom he might devour. "'You would scarcely know the woman from a white one,' said Marks. "'The man is a very light mulatto. He has a brand in one of his hands.' The hand with which George was taking the tickets and change trembled a little, but he turned coolly round, fixed an unconcerned glance on the face of the speaker, and walked leisurely toward another part of the boat, where Eliza stood waiting for him. Mrs. Smith, with little Harry, sought the seclusion of the ladies' cabin, where the dark beauty of the supposed little girl drew many flattering comments from the passengers. George had the satisfaction, as the bell rang out its farewell peal, to see Marks walk down the plank to the shore, and drew a long sigh of relief when the boat had put a returnless distance between them. It was a superb day. 
The blue waves of Lake Erie danced, rippling and sparkling in the sunlight. A fresh breeze blew from the shore, and the lordly boat ploughed her way right gallantly onward. Oh, what an untold world there is in one human heart! Who thought, as George walked calmly up and down the deck of the steamer, with his shy companion at his side, of all that was burning in his bosom? The mighty good that seemed approaching seemed too good, too fair, even to be a reality, and he felt a jealous dread every moment of the day that something would rise to snatch it from him. But the boat swept on, hours fleeted, and at last clear and full rose the blessed English shores, shores charmed by a mighty swell, with one touch to dissolve every incantation of slavery, no matter in what language pronounced, or by what national power confirmed. George and his wife stood arm in arm as the boat neared the small town of Amherstburg in Canada. His breath grew thick and short. A mist gathered before his eyes. He silently pressed the little hand that lay trembling on his arm. The bell rang. The boat stopped. Scarcely seeing what he did, he looked out his baggage and gathered his little party. The little company were landed on the shore. They stood still till the boat had cleared, and then, with tears and embracings, the husband and wife, with their wondering child in their arms, knelt down and lifted up their hearts to God. "'Twas something like the burst from death to life, from the grave's cerements to the robes of heaven, from sin's dominion and from passion's strife, to the pure freedom of a soul forgiven, where all the bonds of death and hell are riven, and mortal puts on immortality, when mercy's hand hath turned the golden key, and mercy's voice hath said, Rejoice! thy soul is free. The little party were soon guided by Mrs. Smith to the hospitable abode of a good missionary, whom Christian charity has placed here as a shepherd to the outcast and wandering, who are constantly finding an asylum on this shore. Who can speak the blessedness of that first day of freedom? Is not the sense of liberty a higher and a finer one than any of the five? To move, speak, and breathe, go out and come in unwatched, and free from danger. Who can speak the blessings of that rest which comes down on the free man's pillow, under laws which ensure to him the rights that God has given to man? How fair and precious to that mother was that sleeping child's face, endeared by the memory of a thousand dangers! How impossible was it to sleep in the exuberant possession of such blessedness! And yet, these two had not one acre of ground, not a roof that they could call their own. They had spent their all to the last dollar. They had nothing more than the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. Yet they could not sleep for joy. Oh, ye who take freedom from man, with what words shall ye answer it to God? End of chapter 37